Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we have a very special, uh, what I would call a premiere episode with Roy Riachi. We we're talking about Riachi, well, really winery first and distillery now from Lebanon. And I once again am kind of speechless to talk to you of brand new distillery for all intents and purposes. So, Roy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for hosting me. And so for a little uh, background on, on just how this came to be, I you know received an invite to come to one of the big liquor shops in New York, Park Avenue Liquor Store. A lot of brands have been launched there over the years from Compass Box to, to I mean, several others. But you guys got to launch Levantine Heights, Aether, uh, at uh, Park Avenue. Heights and Aether there, yes. Yes. And you got to do that. Brandy Library, also in New York, and of course, Travel Bar, my favorite in the city, besides a couple other cities in the U.S. And uh, I happened to go, got to meet you, got to meet uh, the representative from Allied, Ed, and tried the whiskeys and just said, I got to talk to this guy more. I got to know more about this process. What's <laughs> going on? It's the only Lebanese whiskey distillery there. You know, I, I got to talk more. So uh, thankfully that's well that's that is the background that covers the background so let's just <laughs> jump right in uh you're back in lebanon now so uh yep we are about seven hours apart but exactly. we're gonna have a good time on this one so let's just let's just dive right in with the the history of riachi and let's say up until you started distilling Okay, we've well, we've been distilling since the beginning, but we've okay. started with the whiskey about 11 uh, years ago. So let me just give a brief introduction about Riachi. So I'm Roy Riachi, the eighth generation winemaker and master distiller at Riachi. We are based in Mount Lebanon, about 35, 40 minutes away from the capital city, Beirut. And we're in the mountains, so we're at an altitude of 1,150 meters above sea level, which equates to around 3,500 feet above sea level. So, um, uh, regarding uh, the history of the of the winery, it basically we've been doing wines and the ara, which is the Lebanese spirit, since uh, we started. So we've been distilling uh, spirits for almost. 184 years, if not more. Uh, whiskey, on the other hand, uh, we started fairly recently. And the, the main inspiration behind it was honestly the setup that we already had. So we've our portfolio doesn't only cover wines and spirits, but we also uh, do liqueurs. So we have some jacketed tanks that we were able to modify to, uh, to double as a mash tun. And, uh, you, you know, the fermenters uh, are there. The still actually is quite interesting. So some, I would say maybe 50 or 60 years ago, my uh, grandfather, uh, George, decided to basically upgrade the still. So we had uh, a smaller still. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was about 800 liter boiler. So he wanted to uh, upsize it. So he actually bought a copper pot still from Armagnac in, in France, 
which was which had around 1,800 liter uh, boiler, so which was much larger. But its design isn't the typical Armagnac still because most Armagnac stills have, uh, you know, uh, uh, plates in their columns. So they have uh, some uh, some plates in the column. This is an empty column. So it, it's a boiler with an empty column. It resembles the Scottish gooseneck still quite a bit. But unlike the Scotch uh, still, it does not have an onion. In the, in the column. So it has a fairly cylindrical shaped uh, column. And then its condenser is a worm tub uh, with a very long worm. Basically, it spans around 47 meters, which is roughly almost 150 feet. So there's a lot of uh, copper uh, contact. So we were using this still mainly to distill brandy and to distill the uh, ara. So I thought that it might be interesting since we already have some of the, the shirt set up to start experimenting with uh, whiskey as well. So th that's why we got into whiskey. But uh, as in distillation, we've been doing that for a very long time. And honestly, the, the history of distilled spirits is, you know, quite broad. And not a lot of people have uh, delved into it uh, Understand. Uh, I understand why, because, you know, it's a bit confusing. You know, there's a lot of uh, narratives. There's a lot of uh, marketing that uh, plays into the, the history of distilled spirits in general. But uh, all distilled spirits, in one way or another, are uh, rooted in basically some of the same terminologies, and they have a shared history when it comes to their to the origin story if you want absolutely and the it's funny that you say that the still kind of it was gotten from an armagnac producer but even then it's a it's not the typical armagnac still it's still a little bit different on that and you know 150 foot long worm tub uh 47 meters that's a lot of copper contact yeah. it's great <laughs> For for I mean for spirits yep. in general, but especially for whiskey, that's great. And so if you're you know you're the family is distilling across eight generations, hundred almost a uh, one eighty four years, hundred eighty four years, yeah. And so you said that part of the, the reason you got into whiskey was because you you know had the setup already, in a way you modified a few elements of the process, but you had the general setup available. Uh, looking back, you know, 11 years or so when you started, or even a little bit longer than that, maybe when you're thinking about it, was there something um, either happening in in Lebanon, in the area, in the world even, that made you say that this foray into whiskey was worth it? Okay. So Lebanon in general is a spirits culture. So we pr we produce and consume a lot of spirits. And as I mentioned earlier, the main national spirit is Zara, which is an anise-based spirit where basically you ferment wine, you double distill it, and on the third distillation run, you uh, put green Levantine anise seeds in the still and distill it uh, for a third run. And usually this is uh, consumed like an uh, as an aperitif. So it's consumed with food. So 
how we consume it is usually we uh, mix one part of arak with two parts water and it's consumed with Lebanese food. So almost, and it's not, so basically uh, we don't only have a very big industry of arak production, actually a huge chunk of the consumed arak in Lebanon is homemade. So you have a lot of home distilleries as well in, uh, in Lebanon. So we have, uh, the Lebanese culture is known for having a lot of home distillation and also uh, consuming of Arak. But also the the second best-selling spirit, aside from Arak in, uh, in Lebanon, actually the best-selling spirit is whiskey because Arak is produced by most uh, people. So even though Arak might not sell as much as whiskey, it's probably consumed more than whiskey, but it's distilled more than whiskey. You know, because there's a lot of home distillers. Right, right. And so, so is, yeah. no, please. <laughs> so uh, the culture is there here, and but mo- like most countries, the evolution starts when it com- when it comes to uh, classical whiskey consumption outside of the U.S. It's mainly in blended Scotch whiskey because in, in the U.S. it's one of the four main whiskey producing countries. You have your own whiskey styles. Bourbon is a huge part of uh, American whiskey culture. In Lebanon, the the main whiskey that was consumed uh, and still is, is blended Scotch whiskey. But, um, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, we saw basically the the rise of uh, single malt Scotch in, in the industry. And it was gaining momentum slowly. It still didn't, uh, you know, quantify more than, let's say, uh, maybe, I would say, uh, I don't know, three to five percent of the uh, total uh, whiskey consumption in Lebanon. But it was gaining in popularity. It, it rose from zero to three percent in a few years. And it was, uh, I think, between 2010 and 2019, it grew by another 3%, 3 to 4%. So it doubled in a span of uh, 10 years in terms of uh, volume. But in terms of value, it had a greater uh, chunk because, you know, most uh, single malt scotch is higher, fetches a higher price versus blended scotch whiskey. So as a market, it was a growing market in Lebanon and worldwide. It was uh, growing as well. Also, uh, world whiskies were uh, basically a growing segment, especially with, with Japanese uh, whiskies and J- Japanese single malts. So I felt that there was an opportunity with brown spirits, especially uh, while having the uh, the wine industry very saturated you know competition in in wine is actually more cutthroat than in the in whiskey i can believe it um <laughs> there <laughs> there are a surprising number of of people who work in the whiskey industry whether it be on the production side the marketing side what have you that uh I've spoken to you or just or even had on the podcast that come from the wine industry and then move into whiskey industry and a lot of them say that they end up having more fun in the whiskey industry because it's more collaborative and yeah there's competition of course but there's it's less cutthroat for sure 
exactly. Yeah. 100%. Now, you know, uh, both are fairly, you, you do have your pretentious elements in both industries. So you will get pretentious characters and pretentious brands with wine and with whiskey as well. But that's uh, that's not a big deal. Even consumers, you, you do get uh, some pretentious consumers on both the ends. But that's fine. That's part of uh, that's part of the uh, part of any industry, basically. So that's uh, that's fine. Uh, and also, I uh, for some reason got into uh, whiskeys. I would say late, uh, like probably in '08. I I didn't really like uh, whiskey all that much uh, when I started. So I my my taste usually usually was more towards Arak and uh, wines. But I started developing a taste, especially when I started getting into single malt scotch uh, by 2008, 2009, 2010. So when I started collecting those uh, different brands and the main inspiration, honestly, uh, was when I saw the, the, the great resemblance between the still that we are using and the... Uh, the Scottish uh, pot still. And can you, uh, do you mind telling us what your, your favorites were at that time? Well, definitely I would say the Dalmore back in the days was one of my uh, favorites because it was fairly well balanced, easy to drink, you know. So the, the peated, uh, varietals are always an acquired taste so you will have to get into them you can't really just taste it the first time and really like a lafroig or an art bag or whatever you know you, it's an acquired taste because how our palate is structured is structured in a way to be aversive to astringent uh, and bitter flavors so those are definitely an acquired taste uh Definitely Glenfiddich is an entry-level whiskey because it's a nice, easy-drinking uh, space side. Also, it's on the uh, lower end of the pricing uh, structure. So when you're in your early 20s, it's one of the more accessible whiskeys uh, for you. And for, you know, most of the, uh, you know, people that consume uh, whiskey but don't consume single malt scotch you know sure. uh, what else uh, so the, the brands are quite diverse so what when I started reading more about uh, whiskey and whiskey production and uh, whatnot and I saw the still that they were using I got into I basically started uh, experimenting with the ideas first. And we also had basically from, from 2005 till 2015, for about 10 years, we had uh, a company that produced uh, Alcopops and uh, beers, which was a separate uh, company, which was sold from uh, Riachi. So, uh, the beer was already uh, being produced. So you, I started experimenting with the pale malts, not the Lebanese uh, barley first, 
definitely not topped. And I ran a few uh, stripping runs. I To this day, by the way, how we distill is basically through one still. We don't have two stills, a wash still and a spirit still. So we run several, several stripping runs. And then we combine those uh, low wines into one spirit run. Uh, so from then on, you know, after we started ex experimenting, we saw that this could work. Uh, I decided I wanted to produce a whiskey that reflected the the terroir and the cuisine. Now, I know the, the concept of terroir is very speculative and, you know, uh, it's you, they either like it or they hate it in the whiskey uh, industry mainly because how it's uh, you know how it's pitched but in order to have a terroir you have to have some some elements from the local uh, you know landscape from the viticulture uh, not viticulture from the agricultural output of a certain region refle be reflected in the whiskey so in that sense it could work in whiskey you'd need a unique uh, barley, you need a unique grain that is unique to a specific terroir. And you also need a unique, uh, the main flavoring agent in most whiskeys is the oak. So you need a unique oak uh, that is unique to a particular terroir. So we decided to experiment with uh, Lebanese barley. It's a two-row uh, kind of barley, which is mostly used for semolina, which is a type of uh, flour used mostly in baking. So, but this also renders the, uh, the the Lebanese barley fairly expensive uh, when compared to other kinds of, uh, let's say, uh, barleys. It's almost, the price I'm, I, I would say is almost slightly cheaper when you buy it raw as raw bar barley versus malted barley but once you malt it because you lose about lose about 30 percent from the total volume uh when malting so it becomes a bit more expensive than buying uh, ready-made malts and secondly when it comes to the oak especially now i'm talking about uh, athir our uh, first whiskey that we launched which are which is also our premium range we wanted to use Lebanese oak. So Lebanese oak is actually a genus of its own. It's Quercus libani. But Lebanese oak and other uh, forest trees in Lebanon are illegal to cut down. So you are not allowed to cut down forest trees in Lebanon. You're only allowed to cut down fruit-bearing trees because most fruit-bearing trees, you know, they... Uh, uproot them and replant uh, others every seven to 10 years. So it's legal to, let's say, cut down apples and uh, pears and whatnot, but it's not uh, legal to cut down oak and pine and cedar and stuff like that, but it is perfectly legal to prune. So what we do is that we pr pr prune uh, the branches, we debark them, we toast them, and then we borrowed from the aging method of Arak, which is clay amphoras. Uh, so we get the clay amphora, which is a porous uh, vessel. 
and actually has a unique influence on the content. So we put the uh, oak branches, the cured oak branches inside of the clay empora and then put the whiskey uh, with it. Now, as a vessel, it's quite unique because one, it's porous, two, it can give an earthy character to, uh, to the spirit, and thirdly, it has a relatively stable uh, temperature. So even when you have temperature fluctuations in the environment, uh, it's still relatively uh, cool. So let's say in, in winter, it might go down to about, I would say, 10 degrees Celsius, even if the environment was uh, freezing around it at zero Celsius, which is, uh, so we'll do the conversions later in, uh, sure, in sure. Fahrenheit. Sure. At 10 degrees, we're... But uh, summer, it doesn't go beyond about, uh, about 20 Celsius. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So if the environment was at zero Celsius, it would mean that uh, it's about 32 Fahrenheit. So if it's at 32 Fahrenheit, it would be probably at around 50. Uh, Fahrenheit, the, the content inside, if the ambient environment. And if it was quite warm around it, it would not, let's say if the, the, the weather was, I don't know, or, or the ambient uh, temperature was around 80 or 82 Fahrenheit, the content would not be more than 20 degrees Celsius, which is about 72 maybe Fahrenheit. So it's okay. the, the temperature fluctuation is fairly stable, mainly because the environment also is fairly stable around it because we're a winery. So where we age our wines and spirits, they're in different, different locations, but the general atmosphere inside uh, the winery is fairly uh, cool year round. So basically the temperature does not exceed uh, on average, it's around 18 degrees Celsius. And on very cold winters, it can go down to around 10 uh, Celsius. So it's a fairly cool uh, uh, environment inside uh, the distillery. So there's, there's so many things to jump off of from there. And, and we'll, we'll definitely get to all of them. Uh, the first one being just a quick note that I saw on your on. Uh, your website this was specifically with the aether but um it i'm guessing it applies to all spirits is that you're facing about a one to two percent angel share a year yeah which which based on the climate you just described is that sounds exactly right that you know very low um angel share you know constant temperature or, or stable temperature i should say and so and the idea to use the the amphoras i you know i this is probably the question that i was most nervous to ask because it's it's something obviously we don't really have here in the u.s we we don't use the clay amphoras um and in terms of these products and getting into whiskey did you or do you face any issues in terms of calling it whiskey simply because it's it's not in a, an oak container per se but rather in a clay amphora with oak in it and then for one product also in cedar 
Awesome. You. So thanks a lot for asking this uh, question. And uh, this is an awesome question to delve more into the history of whiskey in general and the uh, the definition in, in, in general. So uh, I did get some backlash from very, very few really uh, whiskey, uh, whiskey lovers. But in general, it's it's not the case. In, a, in any case, I the, the backlash that I got when it, when it comes to uh, calling it whiskey was fairly minimal. Like uh, they're still under under ten people, I might say, even under five. And the main reason uh, is well, what is whiskey? So let's go into the etymology and the definition. So, as I was mentioning earlier, I wanted to connect the, the history of distilled spirits with, uh, with whiskey and why we got into it. So, one of the reasons why was definitely uh, commercial. So, uh, getting into uh, whiskey made sense uh, at the time, still does. But also, culturally, as I mentioned, Lebanon is a... Uh, a spirits producing uh, country and it's part of uh, you know its environment the, uh, the Levant has a very old history in distilled spirits so you know by uh, by defi- by definition the word whiskey comes from Gaelic and Celtic ishke uh, baha they're written with uh, basically whiskey with a u ishke is written with a u and Baha uh, is uh, Bitha, written as Bitha. But this uh, wording means water of life. So this wording means water of life. So whiskey is originally Ishkeba. And the oldest reference for basically uh, distilling uh, or the oldest historical reference for whiskey was basically a king sending uh, his men to buy malted uh, barley malts to produce aquavita now aquavita is water of life in latin but why was aquavita the the term that was used back in the day do you know i have definitely learned it and it is blanking on me but i think it's because it's safest to drink okay (laughs) no problem so the word alcohol comes from Arabic, from kuhul, which means, uh, which also comes from another word in Arabic, which is kahl. Uh, kahl basically is mascara. So when you're distilling uh, in copper pot stills, a byproduct of uh, a byproduct of distillation is uh, silver in very low quantities. And that silver was used also for uh, mascaras. Now, also in the Arab world, which uh, basically was the pioneer in uh, distilled spirits, uh, the oldest uh, alchemical references for distillation of wines in particular were in uh, the Arab world. They date back to the 8th century AD, 
there was a polymath called Abu Jabir ibn Hayyan. Um, if you Google the father of alchemy, this guy uh, is that uh, is him, basically. So he was the first to document uh, distillation. And also, uh, he was the first to draw the, the, the past still in a fairly scientific uh, manner. But also, distillation in the Arab world predates that. So this was the first scientific uh, reference for distillation. Prior to that, there's a lot of literary references in uh, Lebanon, for, uh, or not only in Lebanon, in the Arab world in general, for uh, distillation. And actually, there is a whole segment uh, of uh, poetry in the Arab world called Khamriyat, which basically are poems about uh, drinking and getting drunk. So, Arak, for example, which in its current form is was this, is distilled with anise. Before that, it wasn't. So, the oldest reference for uh, Arak being distilled with uh, with anise dates back to the ninth century. Now, I know it feels like I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but there's so much uh, going on here. So, you will see how this is all related when when I'm uh, when I'm done. I trust you. It's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a rabbit hole. <laughs> so uh, the oldest uh, reference for arak being distilled with anise dates back to the ninth century, where a Persian polymath by the name of Al Razi basically said that uh, the countries of the Levant Levant was were distilling arak with uh, aniseed, but arak. Arak, by definition, means uh, sweat. So, you know, distillation is when your liquid is evaporating. It passes through a condenser. And what's happening is that condensation is sweat. That's why it's called arak. The vapor is turning into liquid. So uh, most uh, brandies at the time were call called arak in, uh, in the Arab world, but they were also called uh, which is basically elevated wines because you know when when you uh, distill the, the vapor is uh, rising and also the oldest literary reference for distilled spirits in uh, the arab world is which is water of life and this dates back to around the fifth century so the oldest reference in whiskey for aquavita is about probably the 14th century. The oldest reference for water of life in the Arab world dates back to the uh, 5th century, where basically it was mentioned by several uh, poets. Uh, the most uh, notable was basically a poem about... Uh, basically, that he was a figure in Arab, uh, Arabic uh, mythology. This guy was called Antar bin Shaddad, and he was supposedly addressing his soon-to-be father-in-law. He was telling him, basically, if he wants to uh, offer him a drink, water of life, uh, if you want, I'll mention it in Arabic and try to do the uh, literal translation. So, Ma'al Hayat is water of life. Uh, just for, uh, I'll do it. I know that most of the, the audience won't understand what I'm saying, but in order to give it some context. So it, it, it goes like, لا تسقني ماء الحياة بذلة فا 
فإن كأس الحنزلة بالذلة كجهنم وجهنم بالعزة أطيب منزلا. So what he was trying to tell him is that don't offer me uh, a drink if you want to humiliate me because uh, offering me a drink while humili- humiliating me feels like hell. But if you were honoring me and I was going through hell, it would be even better than drinking the best uh, water of life. Something like that. I know I butchered the, the translation, but that was the gist of it. So water of life is, uh, as a term, predates uh, Aquavita by a thousand years almost. And the guys that actually got distillation into Europe were the Arabs through two main routes. Through uh, Because at the time, the Abbasid Caliphate in the 8th century had very strong commercial relations with Salerno, which, is a, which was an Italian city-state. And also uh, Spain, a huge part of Spain, was part of the Arabic Empire. So that's how water of life, Ma'al Hayat, got into most European countries. And uh, Ma'al Hayat became Aquavita. And Aquavita was the main reference for distilled spirits. So there was no distinction between the different kinds of distilled spirits. They were either wines, ales, basically fermented liquids that are either from uh, fruits or grains. And then you had distilled spirits, which were called uh, aquavita. And aquavita actually evolved into into several things in Europe uh, with like with the passage of time. For example, in France, st- still to this day, they use uh, the uh, term eau de vie, uh, which translates, basically it's uh, water of life in French is eau de vie. They still use it for distilled spirits in general. And uh, whether it was brandies or whatnot, but uh, even cognac, for example, which is a brandy that is distilled in the town of cognac, the oldest reference for it was Eau de Vie du Cognac, and it only became an appellation in 1936. The French AOC, which is the uh, governing body for wines and uh, spirits, decided to make it into an appellation in 1936, followed by Armagnac in 37 and uh, uh, Calvados in 38, if I'm not mistaken. However, Ishkebaha in uh, Scotland uh, became anglicized by an Englishman, not by a Scot. So there was an English writer (laughs) called Martin Martin in in 1715 who went to uh, Scotland and visited a couple of distilleries and uh, saw that they were drinking something called Ishkebaha. And you can see how Ishke can become anglicized into whiskey. So the first time whiskey was used was in 1715 by Martin Martin. But the first time, uh, I think, uh, the Scotch Whiskey Association used the term uh, whiskey properly was in 1910. Now, the idea behind whiskey being uh, aged in uh, Oak, necessarily in oak barrels to be called whiskey is mostly a national narrative for Scotland. In general, if you want to think of it as uh, a term, 
whiskey is a distilled spirit from grain versus brandy, which is which its origin is brandivine, which means burnt wine in uh, Dutch, which was also anglicized by the English into brandy, uh, is a distilled spirit from wine. So I think the source matters most. And also in, in the US, you do have whiskeys that are not uh, uh, barrel aged. So, uh, as not so, I know I went into a very deep uh, rabbit hole. If I want to summarize, if it looks like a dog, it barks like a dog, then it's most likely a dog, you know. So, if it looks like whiskey, smells like whiskey, tastes like whiskey, made from the same stuff, aged in the same stuff, then it's probably, you know, whiskey. Sure. For sure. Are you still and, with me? Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and I, I really appreciate you going into that because there's you're right that the the definition is that we think that we think of in, in let's say the Western whiskey community is we think about it, it's gotta be an oak, it's gotta be an oak for three years if it's in Scotland or Ireland and um Japan. But you're right that those are all kind of post- facto ex post facto um laws and regulations it's not specific to the whiskey so and for for what it's worth too, technically not laws in, in scotland by the way oh right they yeah, are yeah the swa is not they're, legal. they're not yeah. uh, they're not mandated by the government they are yeah. uh yes yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that the sw is a, is a co-op technically yeah yeah, in the so in the U.S., the, it is the legal. main narrative yeah. of the SWA. Yeah. So there yeah. is really, uh, yes, basically the TTB uh, puts the regulations for uh, for whiskey, but for example, bourbon counts as a whiskey, doesn't it? You know that basically legally you can call something bourbon if it's aged uh, in new charred American oak barrels even for one day. Mm-hmm. Just has to touch wood. But yeah, yeah it has to touch wood. Exactly. Uh, so uh, straight bourbon is a different story. Straight bourbon has to be aged for at least two years and you know the, the rest. The idea is that it's uh, in a nutshell, in order not to go uh, deeper into that rabbit hole, Basically, if it's made from cereal grains, uh, fermented and distilled, and then aged uh, with wood, then it's uh, whiskey. If its uh, sugar source is made from something else, then it's going to be either a rum or a brandy. But technically, those are the only three things that a brown spirit can be, to my knowledge. That sounds about right. And before I, well, wait, uh, let me see. There was one part that I wanted to jump back on for a second. It was, oh yes, uh, it was It was just my own experience. It was that when I met you at Park Avenue and tried the whiskey. So it, at the time I tried the two Levant Heights releases, um, the Aether Spirit of Legends 
and the Aether Cedarwood finish. Now, yes. I I looked up nothing about the brand before I came in. I wanted to go in with blind eyes and or open eyes, whichever way you want to put it, and uh, just taste it for what it was. And finding out afterwards that it's amphora aged with the oak uh, in the amphora, and then the cedar wood being a little different just because you're doing the cedar for another year, you would never guess. As as a Western whiskey drinker, you would never guess that it wasn't aged in a barrel for all intents and purposes and, and everything else that a barrel could mean. You know, for, for me, it tasted exact like you were saying with the dog analogy, it tasted like a whiskey, a unique one to be sure, but recognizably as a whiskey. So with that, I, I think it's it is worth noting that depending on where you're coming from, what you want to define as a whiskey is ultimately up to it's up to where you're coming from. And yeah, I would certainly call this call these whiskeys with no hesitation and what it's made from and what it's made from exactly um within just a quick question on that within lebanon uh you know you guys are the only distillery making single malt whiskey in lebanon right now uh are there any uh either laws or regulations that dictate to you that you know what whiskey can be or what another spirit can be So whiskey regulations in Lebanon mainly, I think, uh, are um, set by uh, the Ministry of Industry. And the main thing about whiskey is that it has to be grain-based. So, But there are no uh, you know, detailed uh, regulations when it comes to uh, whiskey in particular. Uh, there are some whiskey bottlers uh, in Lebanon. Mostly they import uh, like bulk scotch whiskey and bottle it in Lebanon. And uh, mainly for local consumption, they're uh, for the mass markets, fairly cheap as well. The bottle prices on average range, uh, if I told you the prices, they're crazy. It's between three and five dollars. So they're very cheap whiskeys. Uh, but but yes, basically there's a lot of uh, there's there's uh, a couple of whiskey bottlers in Lebanon. But as the whiskey distillery, we're the only whiskey distillery. If I, when it comes to Arak, on the other hand, regulations are a bit more strict and tight. So they do emphasize uh, the source, where uh, what what kind of grapes it's made uh, made from. Uh, it has to be distilled in copper stills. You have to use uh, green anise because arak, for, for example, like whiskey, can be tampered with. So, uh, for example, Southern Comfort, which is a spirit whiskey, it's mm-hmm. technically a fake whiskey or like a flavored vodka. We do have uh, this uh, this stuff also prevalent in the arak uh, world where. You do have, for example, anise-infused uh, vodkas labeled as uh, Arax. Uh, mainly, I think, why the main focus would be on Arak and Lebanon. One, because it's our national drink. Two, there's a lot of producers. And thirdly, there's not a lot of regulations when it comes to whiskey because there aren't that many producers. 
So we're the only producers that produce it from scratch, and there are a couple of other bottlers, and that's it. So I want to ask a question now that that is, it could be a podcast onto itself, um, but it's a, a generalization that I think we need to address head on, which is this notion, it's a Western notion to be sure, that that alcohol just doesn't exist, isn't enjoyed, isn't drunk in the Arab worlds, including everything from North Africa, Levant, up to Turkey, and going east from there. Now, clearly, that's not the case. You know, there's there's plenty of wine all over that region. Uh, national I think spirit. We covered you, that a bit when we were talking yeah. about the, the definition. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, you've got an. I mean, Lebanon has a national spirit. You don't have a national spirit if if the population doesn't drink, you know, it just doesn't go together. Um, you know, granted some countries in that region will be more strict about it. Some are very strict about it, um, adhering to the Hadith, but um, in, I know I'm putting a lot on you to ask, to answer this for us, but what do you think, or how, how should we look at, whether it's the Levant, North Africa, Turkey, Middle East, any of that, and say, no, there is there are spirits drunk. There's wine drunk there. It's it's not like you have an entire region of the world where alcohol is unknown. Is you know, and I know that's a big question, but you know the I understand the uh, the question so. The, I think the, the main problem uh, would be because the, currently the dominant religion of that area is Islam. And in Islam, uh, drinking isn't really prohibited. So if you look at uh, the Quran for a lot of, I am not a Muslim, by the way, but sure. uh, sure. the, uh, and in Lebanon, there's actually a lot of different uh, religions. 40% of the population is Muslim, but uh, the, the rest is uh, 60% or a bit less is Christian. And there are other uh, minorities. And also there is a bit of uh, a, a tiny Jewish population as well in Lebanon. So uh, there is a bit of everything. But in the Arab world, also it's quite mixed. And when I was talking about the Abbasid Caliphate, where... Uh, alcohol was being documented it was a caliphate it was basically islamic rule but drinking was prevalent so there is a common narrative and what actually uh, happened so i think in the arab world there are a couple of uh, countries that are dry states like saudi arabia and kuwait uh, i'm not sure if there's any maybe libya in north uh, Africa, but I think those are the only three dry states in uh, in the Arab world. The rest, so the Arab world is composed of around twenty two different states. Three of them are dry; the rest drink. You know, and uh, the history of uh, wines and spirits 
in one way or another are rooted uh, in that region because you know the the origin story of wine which predates uh, the still spirits goes back to the agricultural revolution and that happened in mesopotamia which is modern day uh, iraq you know so wine uh, started from that region it was actually uh, exported westwards on the mediterranean basin from uh, Lebanon, because Lebanon is on the uh, eastern side of the Mediterranean basin. It wasn't called Lebanon back then. It was uh, basically there were city-states on the coast, which had a common culture, basically stretching from uh, southern Turkey down to uh, northern Egypt. And those cultures were Canaanites and Phoenicians, which were known to be uh, very good. Uh, uh, merchants and also uh, shipbuilders. Mm -hmm. So some almost 3,000 years ago, they exported viticulture westwards towards uh, the uh, North, North African coast and both uh, and the Southern European coast. And then, you know, the Romans and the Greeks uh, expanded uh, viticulture distillation on the other hand there are some uh, clay artifacts for distillation in ancient egypt but uh, there is no conclusive evidence that they've distilled uh, uh, since then but there is a lot of uh, evidence for distillation in the arab world and also as i mentioned earlier there is a whole section of arabic poetry about uh, basically getting drunk and drinking. The most famous uh, poet of which is called Abu Nawas. And it hasn't, uh, it hasn't, it didn't cease to exist at any point uh, in time. So drinking wines and spirits uh, has been an, uh, a common practice in the Arab world since its inception. I think the main uh, the main idea that uh, Muslims or Islam uh, doesn't drink because it is frowned upon in the uh, in the Quran, the, the the Islamic holy book, but it's not prohibited because there are some uh, passages that actually look at uh, wine in positive light. But in general, you know, uh, like hardcore Islamic countries uh, don't want to uh, highlight the narrative where their population actually consumes alcohol. So I think that's the main reason why uh, you, you have this perception that Arabs uh, don't drink and don't produce uh, any alcohol. Because, you know, the states, the, the, the more like Islamic and conservative states don't want uh, this narrative to be associated with, with them. So that's why I think they've had this influence on the Western world where there's a dissociation between uh, the Arab world and uh, alcohol. So the, the first would be uh, definitely the main reason is uh, religious. And secondly, uh, it's basically politics. I mean, it's it was worth asking just because I mean for many reasons, but also 
you're highlighting the multiculturalism that happens to say that only 40% only in quotation marks, uh, 40% of the population in Lebanon is, uh, is Muslim. That's a plurality. It's not even in a majority. It's in what, if you're generalizing, you would say, oh, you expect a higher percentage, but particularly where you are and along the coast and from, I think that's a great range, especially from, let's say Turkey to, uh, to Egypt, where it would have been Canaanite and, and um, Phoenician, the multiculturalism has always been there. There's, and because of that, the idea of it as a monolithic exactly. culture where, where drinking just doesn't happen regardless of who you are, is just not right. And the other thing I want to throw back to is um, a couple of months ago now, I had on Dr. Mark Schrod, and he was talking about his book on global prohibition. And there's an entire chapter devoted just to the Ottoman Empire for basically for that exact reason to say that, you know, everyone would think, everyone in the West would think that the Ottoman Empire must have been, you know, prohibition before prohibition was cool kind of thing, no alcohol or anything. And he's like, no, that wasn't the case at all. There was plenty of alcohol consumed and made throughout the Ottoman Empire through its entire history because it, with so many cultures and so many traditions yep. that it's it's conflating two things together that aren't together so uh, yeah it was it's it, it was another question that i definitely exactly, because you know we uh, we uh, as human beings we like to stereotype it's easier of course of course and by the way regarding the ottoman empire uh, the the so Lebanon was part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, and up until I think um, 1920. So the modern state of Lebanon was formed in 1920. Prior to that, there uh, basically Lebanon was a governorate inside the Ottoman Empire, which were which uh, lasted for more than 400 years. So how the Ottomans actually government uh, governed uh, their uh, lands was basically through decentralization. So it was even more decentralized than modern day uh, US. So basically uh, they had the, uh, the emperor's seat, which was in Istanbul, which was Constantinople uh, prior to that. And from there, they used to uh, appoint different uh, you know uh, governors in different uh, areas and those governors uh, have almost full autonomy and sometimes they even wage wars against each other uh, but at the end of the day they had to pay the tax so if they were able to collect the money and pay the tax to the uh, emperor they they had full autonomy to do whatever they want once they failed to do so either the empire would uh, wage war against them or they would send another stronger, let's say, uh, governorate or uh, city-state to attack that uh, area. So it was fairly decentralized and it gave the different uh, people and different cultures a lot of uh, leeway when it comes to uh, how to live their lives and what to do, as long as they paid their taxes, you know? And that's- uh, That's, that's an age-old tradition around the world. Mention. Yeah, as long as you pay the taxes, <laughs> yeah, no one, you can do whatever you want. 
I want to touch for a moment one more time on on just the profile and um now I can throw in as a teaser that as a pairing with this podcast we are working on a tasting more details to come please uh follow and subscribe and you will f- find those details but and we'll go more into detail in that tasting about the expressions that I've gotten to try and the expressions available in the US um now again when you were in New York the first place you went to was the Brandy Library. Love them. They're they host uh, Scotch and Whiskey Society events. It's it's a very cool place to go. And uh, you posted a video on Instagram of uh, great writer and taster Robin Robinson at the Brandy Library, and he has a glass of Aether in his hand, and among the other things that he talks about the one that i wanted to ask about in particular was he's saying it's an it's unusual to a western palate he's coming at it from the same angle i am of it's definitely a whiskey you know it's whiskey you know it's touched wood you know it's has all those characteristics it's grain based but there are subtle differences so uh, when when you were deciding to bring this product to the us both both lines both product lines to the u.s uh what was that thought process like in terms of you know would we be ready for it with quote-unquote western palettes and what would need to be kind of put into that okay so uh the the brands that i have are uh, two different lines because we're trying to convey two different things with, the, with those brands. So Athir, we're trying to reflect as much as possible the terroir, as I mentioned earlier. With Levant Heights, we're trying to experiment with different whiskey styles. So uh, I'll first tackle the flavor profile of Levant, uh, of uh, Athir, sorry, and then go into uh, Levant. So Athir, we're using Quercus Libani, which is Lebanese oak, and also we're using the Lebanese barley, uh, and we're using the amphora. So the Lebanese malted barley, because it's sun-dried, it retains uh, a lot of its original cereal notes. So once it's uh, fermented, the the wash is fairly fruity. And that fruitiness translates uh, through the still uh, into both fruitiness and some uh, interesting, you know, uh, I wouldn't say completely herbaceous. It's more like black tea notes as well. So there, you, you definitely have some yellow fruit notes in it and some uh, black tea notes. But also the uh, the amphora adds an earthy character to it. Even its 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 mouthfeel changes. It's quite uh, rounded. Uh, so I'm sure. If you remember from the tasting, they feel like they drink below proof. Absolutely. One, yeah. definitely the distillation does have, uh, does play a part because we try to go for the longest uh, head cut uh, possible. But also, you know, uh, because the amphora is quite the porous vessel and it's sealed with uh, leather. So its cap is made of leather. So it's all, which is also a breathable uh, membrane. 
uh, most of the higher alcohols uh, evaporate, producing a very mellow uh, and creamy uh, character. And on top of this, the Lebanese oak is a genus of its own. So it does have quite the unique uh, flavor profile, which is uh, honestly a bit less heavy on the vanilla versus, let's say, Quercus alba, which is American oak. But you have more of those uh, deep and dark, uh, you know, burnt sugar notes. So instead of like having a lot of vanilla in it, you might have a lot of uh, butterscotch or maple syrup or even uh, some molasses uh, notes. So that that is for uh, the Lebanese oak expression in particular. And when you add the cedarwood element to it, which is our double-aged uh, expression of athir, the athir uh, cedarwood, cedar is quite the oily and spicy uh, wood. So this expression is what Robin had in his hand. That's why he was describing it as uh, uh, having having some fats in it because you know cedar has a lot of uh, oils and also. It has a very uh, unique, it's not only unique to a Western palate, it's actually unique uh, in general, because imagine a whiskey that, especially with the cedarwood, that has a cured meat aftertaste. So, or the curing spices of a cured meat uh, in its aftertaste, along with cigar box, tobacco leaf, it's uh, it's quite interesting. It's it's very uh, complex, and they're all nuanced. There's nothing really uh, overpowering, especially when you add uh, a drop of water to open up uh, the aromas. So that's for Athir in, in, in particular. And definitely, I think uh, the, uh, the American market is ready and is uh, and wants flavor profiles that are quite uh, unique. You don't only see this in, uh, in in spirits, but you also see this in the American cuisine. And you know the, the emergence of fusion cuisines, uh, the evolution of the culinary arts in the US. The, I think the American uh, consumer is always searching for new and interesting uh, flavor profiles. So on the other hand, uh, we have Levant Heights, which is our uh, craft and experimental whiskey, where we either take a whiskey style and we experiment with it, or we take uh, the wash, a beer style, and experiment with it. So currently we have about uh, five different expressions from uh, Levant, two of which are available in, in the U.S., one of them is uh, Irish inspired. So it's made, uh, we, we try to experiment with the uh, single pot still uh, expression. Uh, I'm not gonna go into too much details. I'll leave it as a teaser for when we actually do the tasting to go more into it. But we also experimented uh, with the other expression that's available is called espresso roast dark malt. So we somewhat uh, fermented uh, stout, definitely no hops. So we only used uh, dark malts. So the base malt is a Munich malt. 
and we had uh, we also have some uh, what do you call it some uh, roasted malts as well like heavy roast uh, malts so it's quite a toasty wash which translates into a very uh, toasty and nutty uh, whiskey it was so i mean both of them in tasting both was we the progression of the tasting just for for people listening was the single pot still the Levin, levant heights single pot still version then the dark malts uh and then the two aether expressions and uh the it was definitely different for sure the 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 barley in itself you just knew that there was something different there whether it was the single pot still or the espresso roast and i'll be honest the dark mold took me a little bit longer to get uh used to but i'm also someone who just doesn't like stouts so i i tend to stay i like ipas and pale ales and all that stuff so i like bitter and light and piney um for beers at least so but for but i know a ton of people who would drink the dark malt and be like this is what i love in as you're saying in in stouts and in dark beers like this is what i love in that but in whiskey form and it could be really exciting for people to to try and to um get into and with the the i i have to jump back to the barley especially because the sun drying the barley is I haven't heard of anyone else doing that. I'm sure there's someone because there's always like one person somewhere doing something. But in terms of like sun drying the barley as opposed to kilning it or anything like that, what does that look like for you? And and what does that mean for the barley? Great. So, uh, Sun drying the barley is actually the most ancient of techniques because it's, it's technically the easiest of them. Right. You don't need a lot of resources. You just need the sun, you know. Uh, in Lebanon, we do have a culture of sun drying different things. So uh, in our food, uh, one of them is bulgur wheat. So basically wheat is boiled and then it's cracked and I think it's cracked, boiled, and then uh, they sun-dry it. So that's bulgur wheat. And there is also another kind of dried milk called kishik, uh, where basically they uh, do like a milk and starch paste, and then they sun-dry it, and then they powderize it. When later on they... uh, they uh, rehydrate it and becomes into a soup which is uh, cooked with uh, minced uh, meat so culturally sun drying is is there now i have a small question for you i, I know i don't like to put people under the the spotlight but do you know how old malted grains are The history of I mean, malted grains. Oh, sorry. So um, I was saying, I'm not sure about the malted part. I know the fermented, we've got evidence about 10,000 years back. But 
I don't know about the malted. I'm guessing about the same, but please tell me I'm wrong because I want to be corrected on this. <laughs> Believe it or not, malted grains didn't start uh, for uh, fermentation. People didn't malt grains uh, in the beginning to do uh, ales and, and beers. They Someone discovered some 10,000 years ago by accident that if you malt uh, grains, they're easier to chew versus raw grains. And uh, malting grains at the time was probably easier than cooking the grains because you malt them once and they're always available, available so you can uh, eat them whenever you want. So malts were originally a food source before they were uh, used for uh, fermentation. So if we're talking about 10,000 years, so I would say probably most likely it's going to be sun drying. It's not going to be anything else. Uh, and uh, because it's the easiest method, that's why we chose it. I didn't have at the time an air kiln and Definitely, we didn't. Well, you know, I could have uh, probably uh, smoked them because also in our cuisine, there is um, there's a certain kind of uh, freaky food, which is called freaky. So ah. it's basically uh, smoked uh, durum wheat, which tastes like... Uh, which tastes like peated whiskey, <laughs> you know? I could have went uh, that direction. But definitely that was more, you know, uh, ac accessible and uh, it came to mind first. You know, the idea of, uh, the, the idea of uh, sun drying. It's, uh, it was easier and, uh, you know, the Mediterranean, on average, most Mediterranean countries get between 270 and 300 days of sunshine a year. So it was ideal to use the most available uh, heat source, the sun. And I'm thinking too about, um, I think I think this episode will have come out before uh, for our episode, um, I spoke with Colby and Ashley Frey at Frey Ranch. It's a distillery in Nevada, Nevada, excuse me. Um, and they have a peated uh, or smoked malt. But because they, they, the way that they did it was they kind of made a, a faux peat in that they took corn husks and you know, compress them down, ferment them, compress them down until it resembled a peat brick and use that to smoke the barley. Okay. Or the the malts in general, I should say, not just the barley, but the, the grains. And I asked them about, and part of the way they did it was that it wasn't to, they wanted to make sure that they didn't heat the grains as the, as they might in Scotland or Ireland in peating or in Japan, they wanted to just have the smokiness and none of the heat because they felt that the heat would damage the profile of the grains that they were trying to get. And 
it it this made me think of it because um uh, in sun drying correct me if i'm wrong but in sun drying the the heat's not going to get to the same level as it would if you were kilning it or or smoking it over uh, wood or anything like that so um is that accurate like if the it would, the grains don't get as hot during the process well you know with with pale malts especially it depends on how they're drying it so uh, they can be either air kilned or uh, or peated uh, or smoked so maybe with this uh, with the peat smoke they might reach higher temperatures but certainly with the air drying uh, i think it's more temperature controlled so it really uh, depends also you can cold smoke something you know you don't have you can so the further away you are from the heat source the lower the uh, the temperature is so for example the typical isla uh, pagoda in a, in a kiln is usually about 15 feet above the heat source so if, if you want less heat to reach the grains you just raise the uh, distance between the heat source and uh, the grain so definitely with with uh, the sun it's not gonna reach the same temperatures uh, as let's say you can with air kilning or uh, smoking uh, peat kilning the uh, the grains so and mainly definitely you might have higher diastatic power because you know the Diastatic power is basically when you have more enzymes that uh, are retained from the malting process in order to convert the, uh, the starch into simple fermentable sugars. So uh, if you're not raising the temperature quite a bit, you can retain more of those enzymes. And definitely, you know, it might be, uh, you might be retaining a lot of the uh, you know, cereals, original uh, flavor profile. And also you might be altering it in a different way when it when you hit a certain temperature. So uh, I don't know, honestly, I, I can't really give you a, a clear-cut clear, clear uh, answer, but, but definitely the lower uh, heat source has, has a, a better impact on uh, the uh, the enzymes and uh, definitely you're not altering the the malt as much versus when you heat it whether that is desirable or not i think in my opinion it really depends on the type of grains that you are using completely fair i i asked you and we'll get more into this when we do that uh, that tasting that we teased the flavor of the barley comes through even in in the more aged uh expressions with the aether even through the cedar you know that it's a different type of barley and i like that quite a bit I just i just uh an episode just came out at the time of recording with einwerk so yeah in in tasting at park avenue it was very clear that the barley was was different but there was something new about the barley and and we'll get more into that when we do that tasting that we teased, which I'm really getting excited about now. And uh, 
it also reminded me of a recent episode that just came out with Eimwerk Distillery in Iceland. And Icelandic barley, when it comes through in whiskey, is a powerhouse of flavor. It's it's just you it's not it's like no other barley you've tasted before. It's just smacks you in the face. So yeah, I it was I was just talking about the how your barley was very um it was singular in flavor. It tasted different than a commodity grain barley or something like that. It tasted more like um in the way that Icelandic barley was super unique and how Waterford is doing crazy things in Ireland with barley strains just to the point that between the barley coming from Lebanon itself and your process that the barley just comes out and I can't wait for people to taste that. Uh, so are there any other distilleries in Lebanon that are uh, producing whiskey? Uh, not that I'm aware of. There is plenty of uh, gin uh, distilleries currently that are coming uh, out. Uh, definitely plenty of Arak. There were, as I mentioned earlier, there are some whiskey bottlers that bottle uh, imported uh, entry-level Scotch whiskey. But uh, I, haven't, I haven't been aware of any whiskey uh, distillery yet that uh, that might change uh, sometime in the future but uh, to date it's still just us all right well with that i will close out this interview uh it looks like our computers are giving us a little challenge at the very end but thankfully it was at the very end so roy <clears throat> thank you so much for coming on. I loved getting to taste these, meeting you in person. I'm going to really push this tasting because I'm excited for it. Um, in the meantime, when this episode comes out, there will be uh, links in the show notes to the website to where you can buy the expressions that are available in the US to their social media. And Thanks a lot, David. Absolutely, Roy. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, I will be in touch with you for more details on the, on the tasting, um, have a wonderful rest of your day and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the whiskering podcast. I'll see you next time. Thank you. See you.